This is the Radio Check Podcast, life in the concert touring industry. And we're back. Oh, man, I'll tell you, you know, Chris, we've uh, not been doing as many of these things as I hope, but it is always fantastic to see you and to hear you again. So how are yeah. you, brother? Few and far in between, unfortunately. Uh, you know, it's, it's you know, I kind of foresee, foresaw this happening, you know, when when I started getting busy and, and all the people I wanted to talk to started getting busy and, um you know, it was just hard to sync schedules. And now that you are traveling a lot and you're working a lot, it's just, you know, trying to get three people to be like-minded for one time and one conversation has been difficult, but uh, yeah, good to see you, brother. Yeah. So, I mean, on that, I mean, maybe you and I, we need to have a discussion to see what the next uh, manifestation of this process is going to look like, because I think that uh, we need to keep it going in one way or another. Um, but we'll discuss that at another time. But uh, certainly if any listeners are out there and they have some input and kind of some creative aspects on how to keep the communication going and how to keep, you know, the community together. And, you know, and of course, my favorite part of this thing is hearing people's stories. Um, and I think there's a lot of great stories to be told out there. And um, it's amazing. It's, it's of course, it's great to see people getting back out on the road and touring. Yeah, um, Totally. But I, I think that there's also um, things that we've all learned from the pandemic and hopefully we just don't let it, you know, drift back into nothingness or, you know. Um, yeah, 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 agreed. Yeah. But anyway, it's amazing to see you again. Um, yeah, I can yeah, say buddy. that I actually, actually miss it. I miss you. So it's a bit... <laughs> Same here, brother. <laughs> yeah, Same so, here. So this is all really good. Good but, to hear. Um, really yeah, good to hear. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So on that note, um, yeah, I have been traveling and bouncing around right now. Um, I'm in Prescott, Arizona, which is phenomenal. Oh, wow. Love it here. So You're good. like on the mountain biking tour yeah, of, of North am. America, aren't you? You're- yes. Uh, and camping. I believe it or not. I'm, I'm right now I'm at a friend of a uh, friend's house in Prescott and, but I've been camping for the past two weeks. So I'm up on this beautiful mountainside where the sun sets and the sun rises mm-hmm. and everything is just phenomenal. So you know, that's where uh, one of our guests in the past, DC Parmet, he's from Prescott, Arizona. Oh, Interesting. I forgot about that. Yeah. But oh well, Hey, talking about guests, uh, let's get rolling here because yeah. this is exciting for me because um, I've uh, never met this person before and I can't wait to hear their story and uh, certainly the relationship that you have with them as well. So from that, um, why don't you go ahead and tell us what we got going on today? Yeah, well, there, you know, one reason we could find this guy is because he's retired. So this is actually good to sync <laughs> up. Um, but, you know, uh, our guest today is someone who whose name keeps coming up in lots of conversations with other production managers and stage managers who hold this gentleman in the highest regard for everything they've done for him in the past uh, through their careers, whether he was mentoring or helping them or hiring them or helping them. But he's a, a beloved person in our industry. And uh, can I please introduce John Bugsy Hugdahl? Hey, Bugs. How's hey, retirement? How <laughs> uh, it's the blessing of COVID. If there is such a thing, I found out that staying home is actually something I really like as opposed to being gone all the time. So, right. you know, I, I, when I say that to people, they're like, how can you even consider COVID a blessing? And I go, well, I found out by accident and it was because of that. You know, I was right in the middle of, we were about to load into rehearsals for Bon Jovi for their tour a year and a half ago. And uh, boom, 
we're all out of work as we all know. Right. And, uh, and, uh, you know, after a few months of regurgitating some, some past, uh, experiences with other people because we didn't have anything else to do and then trying to convince people it was going to start right back up again in six months. Of course, that all fell apart as well. And, uh, then I decided that, you know, this being home thing was really cool and I've loved it ever since. Lots of RV trips. <laughs> well, you know, we can, we can see you or people listening can, but you're, I can see you're, you're, you're at home, you're up in Wisconsin, you, you live in, in, you know, you're surrounded, you're shrouded with, with wood and, and, <laughs> and nature and country. I mean, you know, it's not, it looks like you have a really nice uh, lifestyle. Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, shifting from mass gatherings and thousands of people in different places uh, every week, sometimes every day, uh, to getting on the tractor and getting out the chainsaw and cutting firewood for the next year. And a new hobby arose, building dining room tables just for fun. Wow. And, and that's turned into a, sort of a little niche business. Uh, I don't take orders because then it turns into a job, but you know, uh, with all this wood around here and all these trees, uh, we've managed to harvest off some nice walnut and oak and I've gotten into building dining room tables. So are you planing wood and everything? And no, I, I'm, I'm doing the live edge style, which is very popular up here with Lake Holmes. Um, and, and cottages and stuff, and people put them on their decks and stuff. So I think I'm up to 14 now. Oh, wow. And, and then I realized, oh, this is getting a lot like work. I think it's time, <laughs> be, time to get in the RV and pull the boat and go fishing. So oh, nice. that's kind of, kind of the alternatives to uh, keeping busy. You get to do other things nice. at your leisure, at your leisure. Oh, I love so. it. Hey, yeah, you, know, you and I've known each other for oh, I don't know, uh, twenty plus years or so. I'm not, I'm not really sure. I couldn't even tell you when I first met you. But tell me, I, I, I don't know where you're from. Where are you? Where are you originally from? Right here in Wisconsin. You are. You Actually, are. You, you, you grew up in Wisconsin. Well, I, it's not the place I was, I was raised, but it, uh, it's close to a family homestead from when they all came over from Norway. And I'm about an hour east of Minneapolis, St. Paul. So it's an easy drive to the airport when you have to don't any more. <laughs> okay, so, so growing up up there, uh, mm-hmm. what, was your introduction, yeah. what was your introduction to the industry? How did you, how did you find Well, you it? know, it's, it's actually kind of funny. Uh, a friend, I was going to school uh, in pre-med, and I went to visit a friend of mine who was playing in a band. And they had a band house. They were playing bars and everything. And uh-huh. uh, this is in the 1971. And, uh, you know, I was at a show with them in a bar. And uh, there was the ever-present drum solo going on. So my buddy, who was a guitar player, came over. And he was standing next to me watching a drum solo. And I spilled a beer all down the front of him and his guitar and everything. <laughs> and he yelled, at, he yelled at me to hand him his only other guitar. So I gave it to him and took his, and of course I felt guilty, and I ended up cleaning it all up and giving it back to him. And he said, "Man, it's never looked so good." And I turned into a guitar tech right there at that oh, moment. Oh wow. wow! Of course, 
that lasted about two weeks because when they found out I couldn't tune a guitar to save my ass, then I became like a drum tech and that didn't work out well either. And I, I found that technology and in, in performance was probably something I wasn't going to really get into, but I liked loading the truck. <laughs> <laughs> uh, not so much unloading, but loading it. So. No, <laughs> right, right. So that's my humble beginning right there. And that right. turned into a turned into a friend of mine uh, from that area where the band house was because I was working for cigarettes and beer and no rent. There wasn't any money involved. Uh, but a friend of mine asked me to help him drive out to New York to his uh, sister's boyfriend was in a band and they needed somebody to help set up their PA. So I went with them. I ended up staying with that particular band for four years uh, in upstate New York. Uh, the name of that band was McKendry Spring, which is, you know, not known at all now, but they were kind of well known in the area for sure. They did like six records and they were kind of a uh, protest band. This is okay. 1971. So, oh, of course, yeah. they did a lot of college gigs, uh, a lot of, you know, demonstrations where there were music because it was still the Vietnam War going on. And uh, in that process of that band, working for that band, I met a whole bunch of guys who, some of which have, I've no, I know to this day, that were working for other bands because we were opening for a lot of those bands. And uh, a, lot of the, a lot of the top bands at the time needed opening acts and my buddy and I drove around in our own truck. We had a sleeper cab, which was unheard of back in those days. So we could do 600 mile overnighters, and we did. <laughs> we, would, uh, we would do what was called the Gene Autry. One guy would get too tired to drive anymore. He'd just slide over on the seat because it wasn't bucket seats. And the other guy would slide down out of the sleeper, and it'd have the throttle pulled out all the way. And we'd just keep right on going. We could go about 500 miles on our saddle tanks. So it was, you know, burning the candle at both ends, needless yeah. to say. You know, we, I've talked about that, that period, you know, that, that coming of age period of, uh, of careers a lot. And, you know, I did that. I drove the truck and did the very right. same thing, you know, and you, know, yep. you, you didn't have an itinerary when you needed a hotel, you just found one, yep. you know, you didn't, you know, you, you pulled into a city and you went to the first gas station and asked where the gig was. And, you know, you, 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 there was just kind of, you had maps. Yep. You actually had tactile books of maps that you had to use. I thought, and, uh, a, uh, I thought the road Atlas was the coolest thing ever when I saw my first one, you know? Right. Yeah. <laughs> they were, they were, they were good, but you know, I, I really appreciate that part of my life. I don't want to say my career because you know, my life and, and, you know, in some ways, those were the happiest days of our lives. We weren't making any money. We had our whole right. life ahead of us. It was just so freaking exciting, you know? Everything you did was being done, it seemed like, for the first time. You're plowing the field, you know? Right. I know. We, uh, none of the arenas existed. Stadium tours were unheard of. You know, yeah. the, the whole rigging was something you never saw because it didn't exist. Yeah. We stacked the PA on the stage, had ground support lights, yeah. all that stuff. Catering <laughs> was a vending machine. 
the production <laughs> office was a pay phone, you know. Yeah, there was yeah. none of that. None there were no that. phone calls to make, though. There really weren't. You just kind no. of showed up and hoped that they yep. were there to open the door for you. <laughs> Hope you were at the right place. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yep. I can remember mm-hmm. stacking the PA. It was, you know, it was, it was kind of daring in a way. Okay, you hop on top of the subs, then you put some of the mid boxes up, and then you stand on top of the mids, and then people throw you up the horns, and you throw the horns on top, and all the while it's wobbling, and you're trying to cable it across the back and oh my goodness yeah absolutely Uh, absolutely okay you know in those days you really didn't have a a title you know you were like you were part of the crew and you just did whatever Mm -hmm. you needed to do you know pa lighting backline you know uh, um what did you find interest in and what were what were the things that you know kept you wanting to learn and 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 dive deeper into the industry well you know talk about titles just on Other the than side loading the truck i should say right uh speaking of titles just as a sidebar i i remember in the early uh 70s we were opening for uh uriah heap and oh, wow. humble pie those bands english bands and all, right. all the road crew were called road managers. They weren't called roadies or techs. Geez, techs was something that, you know, worked in a lab. So everybody was a road manager, which I thought was really funny at the time, of course. <laughs> but what I, more t- to your question, uh, it was pretty simple. Uh, I had one job, a conventional job in my life, and it was working in a factory and I had to show up every day at the same time, do the same thing all day long and come home dog tired. I'd end up getting hammered one way or another and then have to go all bleary died to work the next day. And I realized after three months that working in the same place every day was not what I was cut out to do. This was after I came back from working for McKendree Springs. So I had already had a really good taste of the lifestyle. And I took this factory job mainly because I needed the money. But after that, I was like, I put my name out. All the people I met, I was like, hey, if you need anybody, you need anybody. I was Because I knew I was not cut out to work in a factory. Right. And God bless the people that do, because we'd be screwed without them, you know? And so, so, you know, as the 80s, or you get closer to the 80s as the 70s, did you, did you, did you stay in the industry? After, when did I never you, left. When, when did you I jump back left. in after the factory? Um, there was, uh, I, I don't know who called me. Um, I think, you know, when I was working for McHenry Spring, I met a, a common friend of all of us since departed, which is ML Pro Size. Right. He was working for a band called Ethos in Indiana. Another sidebar. Yeah. He's from everybody thinks he's a Texan. No. God, he hated (laughs) Texas when he first moved there. Um, This is yet another sidebar, but I'll tell the ML story. He was, uh, his band Ethos was opening for McHenry Spring. And and we were playing at a college in, in Indiana, which is why they were on the bill. ML came to me when we pulled in to start setting up our PA. We had a Sun Coliseum PA. And 
unheard of nowadays, of course. But ML convinced me that his JBLPA was better than ours. And he sold me on that PA and we put their PA up instead of ours. And he was the opening act. So I should have known at that point, I was never going to be rid of the guy. He turns out to be, he turns uh, out to be one of my, one of my best friends in the business. Uh, and uh, it was an interesting day when we all went to that memorial service in Dallas. Yeah. So that's my nod to ML. Yeah, uh, I, watched, kept, I watched it on video. Yeah, we kept up together over the years. Of course, him being a, a you know a, a sales account manager for Shoko all those years, uh, you know, and it was he always had the best PA going, no matter what. Right, <laughs> and yeah. we found it very ironic that he ended up at Star Brothers. Of course, uh, funny. <laughs> I, I, I connected in Dallas yesterday on a flight. I those when I walked off the jetway into the dfw airport is the first thing i thought it was ml process right yep so anyway uh it was coming back um i think somebody called me and i might have been ml said uh they're looking for a guy to uh be a band band roadie for uh this band that's going out on an opening act thing and i'd never heard of them and it was jd souther uh, if you've oh, right. heard of the Souther Hillman Fury Band. He wrote and, for the Eagles, right? Was he? Correct. They were opening for the Eagles at the time, the Souther Hillman Fury Band, or J.D. Souther was, I should say. And that was on the Hotel California tour. So I went out there, drove the truck to all the gigs, set up the back line, all that stuff. And uh, that was kind of the re-entry. I'd only been off the road for like the last year. And then, then it was... Right. It was a snowball effect. You met five people on one tour, and then one of them exactly calls you. What happens, yeah. yeah so exactly. you were on the Hotel California tour. Yes. Oh wow! How great. Did you did you have any early encounters with Mr. Azoff? Uh, <laughs> that's a long checkered history as well. <laughs> <laughs> although, although I must say there, I, I can't say it. It's been a negative thing at all, you know, but. Uh, there are, we can touch on him going down the road a little bit. Oh um, yeah. He's going to, he pops in and out of your career uh, all along. You know? Yeah. Although not as much as most people, I, you know, I've only had a few things, uh, interactions with him over the years, uh, at that point in time, no, uh, I didn't really have anything to do with them because I was merely a roadie with the opening act, you right. know? Right. So, but it was an eye opening experience. It was the first, uh, real stadium tour that I was on, you know? Must have been and super exciting. I mean, that must it have was been thrilling. You, you, you know, when you walk out there and you think uh, you're in the opening act and the place is only half full and you're still going, holy shit, look at all these people. And then when they go on and the place, you know, and you, all the hair on your arm stands up because of the crowd reaction is doesn't matter who you're working for when you hear that. If you don't get that feeling. Something's wrong with you. <laughs> yeah, I love those '70s tours, uh, uh, the festival tours, in the '70s. You know, oh yeah, the headliner would go on in the daylight. You know, a lot right. of times. You know, I remember yep. how, how many times have you seen the pictures of Led Zeppelin playing outside in a during right. the day or whatever? You yep. know, did the Eagles play during the day or at night on that? I think uh, the shows. Uh, where did we play? That I remember. I think it was Riverfront in Pittsburgh, right? Uh, they played, I think they played at night more often. Okay. And 
Yeah. Although I did a bunch of day in the greens in San Francisco. Right. For Bill Graham with a couple different bands. And those were all daytime things, you know? Yeah. So, could, so, so, so the Eagles and stadiums, you know, hotel yeah. California, it's the, it's, it's the biggest record in America right. on FM radio. How many trucks was that? <laughs> I think it was Four? seven. Oh, that many? Seven. Okay. Well, that, that included the stage. <laughs> 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 but, you know, again, it was my involvement in that tour compared to, you know, 30 years later, 40 years later is, was entirely different. You know, I was that kid driving that bobtail truck, you know, yeah. and it was always, was always in the way and was getting yelled at and all that. But, you know, when you see, but when you see the headliners, the crew for the headliners, and they had two guys that just tuned guitars, that's all they did. That was an eye-opening experience. They had 45 guitars on that tour. And wow. I was like, wow, this is the big time. Well, it was, of course. Who were some uh, of the Who were some of the people working for the Eagles that you remember? Who are the any of the names that that, that, that... you know? Uh, boy, I don't, I don't. It's that limited involvement, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Jimmy Collins was a guy, one of the guitar guys that I remember, and I I saw him a few times over the years, but I don't know whatever happened to that guy. And there was a couple other techs that were, you know, they're nice to us as opposed to the guys that were in charge who were, we were like a hemorrhoid to them. So. <laughs> oh yeah. Well, you know, back in the early days, the, the, the support acts were to be shit upon. They just, were, yes, that's you know, right. You, know, you can't be nice to them. I, I, I never, I never got that. And you know what? That's, that was a very good reason for me to decide that I didn't want to work for support bands anymore. You know, <laughs> you wanted, wanted to be, be doing the shitting. You didn't I, want to be I catching want, it. <laughs> right. Yeah. And I went to uh I started out doing the same thing next with Nazareth, the Scottish band. Right. Uh, they needed somebody to drive a truck and help set up their gear. Uh, so we were doing some support gigs, which there were some very memorable ones, I must say. Um, one of which I could tell you that uh, a common buddy of ours was there, and I just found out a month ago that he worked the same show that I did that we're about to, I'm about to mention uh, in Greensboro, North Carolina, Nazareth opened for uh, Leonard Skinner okay. on their lat on their last show. Oh, and with Mr. Lawler. Steve Lawler was there. How funny. We've known each other. We didn't know we've known each other for almost for 40 years until just a, a month ago. <laughs> It was interesting, but uh, right. so we were on the phone about a month ago talking, and I said, you know, that, and I, I don't know how I found that out. I think I read I read some quote of his, and I was like, dude, you aren't going to believe this. I'll tell you a story, a short one about that night. Uh, the night before, the Nazareth band. And me, because there was only seven of us all together. We were all in the hotel bar and a Skinner band was in there as well. Uh, let's just say the two bands met with common ground in different ways to become distracted. In other words, they found ways to entertain themselves that were Southern and Scottish. And when those two met like that, 
It was a very interesting public phenomenon. <laughs> <laughs> hey, well, However, there's not much difference between scotch and, and whiskey. <laughs> that's right. So uh, on that particular night, um, I and I told Steve Lawler this, uh, I was sitting in the bar drinking shots of tequila with, with Cassie Gaines and the rest of the band. They treated everybody the same. They were really great, just like the Scottish guys were the Naz guys. Um, they invited the Nazareth band to, to go with them on the plane after the show the next night. And the pilot, they asked the pilot about it. And he said, no, if we, if we do that, then we're going to have to stop and get fuel somewhere on the way because we'll be overloaded. So the band said, Naz band said, no, no, we don't want you. We don't want you to go out of your way. We'll just go the way we were going to go. And you guys do your thing. Well, they ran out of fuel anyway. Yeah, wow. So if they would have went with them, they would have stopped for fuel. And that could have saved them, yeah. I that's mean, funny. that's like a, that's a, uh, something that's always stuck with me because I was there when all of that happened and, yeah. and saw that exchange happen. Yeah, Steve Steve told Matt and I the story on a podcast uh, uh, last year. It was really, right? really, really touching and how he just recently went to go visit the site to meet up with the farmers that pulled them out of the plane. And right. there's a memorial there now because I live right. in Louisiana. And when I, I got vaccinated in, in Mississippi and I drove right by the, uh, the memorial, there's right. a sign on the exit, Leonard Skinner Memorial kind of thing. So we're, we're kind of where the plane yep. went down. Yep. The other thing we were doing, uh, uh, the Nazareth thing was uh, supporting uh, Aerosmith and Ted Nugent a lot. And of course, I, I don't know if you ever knew Joe Baptiste or Joe ever Baptiste. heard of him. Joe was great. Joe he's was one, my, he's one of the originals. He was my grandpa in the business. And my dad in the business was John Conk. Wow. He, uh, when the band decided to go on a headline tour, they wanted me to take on a, uh, responsible role that had manager in it whether it was production or stage i don't even remember so they they hired john conk to come out on the road for a week with us to show me the ropes <laughs> and the first thing i learned from him we were we were riding in a rental car together and he's filling my head with all of this bullshit all the time and he said listen bugsy the one thing you always got to remember is come to work at half past the sound truck because you're not going to be able to take all the hours that it's going to take to do all this shit. So if they haven't got it figured out by half past the sound truck, they never will. And I'm going, I can't do that. I got to be there right at the start or somebody's going to really fuck this up. Right. So we had a long relationship, John Conk and I, we still, I just saw him last summer in Detroit or summer before now. I, this COVID year is kind of blocked yeah, out. Yeah, you know? it does. Um, but he's still going, still running a crew. So that was what led me into the, the production side of things officially. You know, right. we all assume a lot of those responsibility because you have to but in the early days. But then when it becomes more formalized, you're getting paid better too. Yeah. So, so Joe Bapp on, on Aerosmith, was he the first right. kind of guy yep. you saw doing the job? And Yep. 
Yeah, I can I can remember those days. I only worked with Joe Bapp once. I was an aerospace show in Hartford, Connecticut. I was I was uh, one of the stagehands, but I everybody knew who Joe Bapp was. Oh boy, he spoke those Red Paul Malls and had a bottle of whiskey in his hotel every night. <laughs> uh, yeah. he, he's, he's, he's he passed several years ago, long 20, time ago, 25, yeah. close to 30 years ago, maybe even he yep. passed. He got his start. Uh, God, I'm trying to think of, there's a club in Boston called Paul's Mall. Uh, yeah, Paul's Mall. Lenny Bruce was his first entertainment wow. employer. Wow. Yeah. Joe Bapp worked for Lenny Bruce. I never yep. heard that one. That's awesome. Yep. Yep. But he so, was, you know, he's the, he was, you know, if, if you say Bill Graham was the first production manager, if you kind of, if you, if you believe that, like I do, then the second one, the second or, or the, the, the disciples that came out after him were, were Joe Baptiste and mm-hmm. Michael Ahern, you know, John Cock, yep. these guys, they were the first ones that kind of yep. figured it out. Yeah, Michael Ahern worked for us on Bon Jovi as a site coordinator. Right. When he left after he left the Stones, you know. And then then the Jake Berries followed after that, and the Charlie Mm -hmm. Hernandez and the Benny Collins and yourself, and kind of they kind of blazed the trail. They paved the road for for. We were uh, doing a lot of things for the first time, which I I always kind of have fond memories of, you know. Flying PAs wasn't uh, cradles or anything. We ever had we had uh, on the black and blue tour. We put down fourteen foot long bas- uh, platforms with the holes cut out, steel frame. We'd stack a Martin PA with W bins and Philly shavers and and uh, horns on the top and ratchet strap them to this platform <laughs> and fly them out and. When you say black that and was blue, a, was that Black Sabbath, Blue Oyster Cult? Is that the one yes, you're referring it was. to? Yeah, because yep. you worked for Blue Oyster Cult, didn't you? For four years, yeah. Wow. What era was that? Like late 70s, early 80s kind of thing? Um, early 80s, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, that's I, the, the I'm Burning for You era. That was their big hit in the early 80s. Yeah. They're, uh, after Nazareth, I, I started with uh, the Pat Travers band. Oh, and wow. That's and I worked for him for three years. Um, boom, boom! Oh, go his first—you got it. I mean, that was a funny story. Here's a funny story for Pat. Um, the very first show, uh, somebody called me and said, "Hey, Pat needs somebody to help him with his rig, right?" And I go, "Well, I'm not a guitar tech. Well, yeah, but you've seen it done and all that stuff." <laughs> Just, I'm like, "Okay, what? What is the deal?" I'm not so, a doctor, but I played one on TV. Exactly right. <laughs> So uh, what could be a long story short, I flew to Oakland to go. They were opening for Cheap Trick. Cheap Trick had been having trouble selling tickets at this. This is one of the first arenas out there. And they were having trouble selling tickets. And they put Travers on the bill and they sold the place out. That was right at the height of boom, boom, I'll go the lights. So I get there at two in the afternoon and they're putting all this gear on stage. And I said, well, what do you need to do? I said, well, the manager says, you just, you need to plug in his guitar and, and change guitars with them. That's all. I go, well, okay, that sounds easy enough. Well, plugging in his guitar uh, involved a four by eight sheet of plywood completely covered in effects. Every kind, he had two echoplexes, every kind of guitar effect that existed 
in those days, all battery powered, of course, were on, was mounted on this plywood. I had took four guys to carry it out on stage. And I was like, what <laughs> the fuck is this? And like, and the crowd was in when we, when we went on stage, cause they did their cheap trick, did their sound check. They held it up as long as they could doors open. We're setting up and here's this thing in front of me. I'm going in front of the crowd. I'm like, You're scratching I don't your head know. What, now. <laughs> I, I have no, not no idea what to do. Right. I mean, I, every, everything you touch made a different sound. And you're, you don't know what's on and what's off. If that one's on, is this one off? You know, that whole deal. There was no bypass switch. None of that shit. Right. I go in the dressing room and I said, hi, Pat. I'm Bugsy. I'm your guy for this one day. And he goes, why do you say that? I said, because of what I'm about to tell you. <laughs> <laughs> I said, I have no idea what this pedal board is supposed to do. I have no idea how what makes it work. And... He put on, to his credit, he put on a uh, like a robe and a, and a ball cap and sunglasses. He went out on stage and he messed with it and messed with it. And it turns out the guy who left rewired a couple of things because he was pissed off. Oh, no. and, and, and Pat goes, well, there is some problems here. I'm not sure what the hell we can do. And I said, well, here's what I would do. And I gave him a 20-foot guitar cord and plugged it straight into the amp and said, <laughs> we know this works. <laughs> He said, well, uh, we're going to have to go through the echoplexes at least. So that's that was, what we did. That was that's a what, great band, though. I mean, yeah, Pat, wow. Pat Tommy Travers Aldridge, and Tommy Aldridge. Tommy Aldridge, Mars, Mars Cowling. Cowling just, he and, just and, passed. And Pat, and Pat Thrall. Pat Thrall was in that band. Great who, band. Who yep. Yeah. Yeah. I have a question for you. You let me know if this, 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 this tale is true. Uh, I worked with Sandy Gennaro, who worked with uh, Pat Travers after... Tommy Aldridge left. He was the drummer after Tommy Aldridge, Sandy Gennaro. And he was the drummer in Joe and the Blackhearts when I, for, for a little right. while when I was back. And he used to say <laughs> they had a private jet that they would take from time to time. And it was just cocaine fueled. It was just like total cocaine fueled party, private jet going from city to city. And he said that there were times where the manager, we used to go up into the cockpit with the pilot that they would put oxygen masks on and take the plane up to altitude <laughs> until the band passed out <laughs> and then they take the plane back down again it was the only way to get it to go to sleep now i don't know if that story is true but it was it's a great story I mean, it is a great story i mean that's after my time because uh they were you know tommy left and uh actually he was still there when I left. That's right. I went to Blue, uh, Blue Oyster Cult from Pat Travers right. because Pat Travers was opening for Blue Oyster Cult. Gotcha. And Rick Downey, who was the lighting designer production manager, uh, needed somebody to handle load in and load out and all that stuff. Right. right. Because because he's also doing lights and there was just too many vacancies. So they hired me as the stage manager. Um, when Alan, the drummer at the time, we were over in Europe and the drummer disappeared. He went off on a, on a binge. He was a drug. He was a drug. Alan Lanier, right? Heavy, heavy, heavy. And, and is it Lanier. true that Rick Dowdy took his place in the band? Is that the story? How do you, you think, 
how do you think I became the production manager? <laughs> I gave Alan this big ball of blow and H and said, go party and Rick will take your spot and I'll take his. No, that's not true. That's not true. <laughs> However, it is true that I did take Rick's place as production manager and I was there for the next three years right. and he was it, or two was, years. Was it Alan Lanier? Wasn't he dating Patty Smith at the time or something? I think he was. Yeah. I don't remember that very well. I know it was somebody well known. And I, I think it was Patty were, Smith. Yeah. I think they were partying pretty good. So. Okay. So Bloyster Cult, you're, that, is that the first gig you think that you identified yourself as a production manager? I would say it was as an official hire. Yeah, I think so. I think so. I mean, there was a few stage managing gigs with different tours before that, where I, you know, like where I said about John Conk and and all of that. Uh, But to go out as the designated guy, I think that's probably true. Right. With your binder full of paper and pencil and, and rotary dial phone and torture. Absolute what fax torture. machine? Yeah. What no, not, fax this machine? is pre folks. Pre <laughs> People make fun of me when I talk about fax machines. How I used to have it like fax machine. Oh, you're so old. Like, I'm, yeah. I'm older, man. I, I remember before fax machines. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Fax machine was that was like a godsend. Yeah, you I agree. I agree. You know, it's like now. All the technology that that is in use now. I mean, we say the same thing. Absolutely. How did we do it before? You know, before all of this, you so. spent your day because you know, I, when I was a production manager in in the eighties, I was not a production manager on show day really because I was a guitar tech and a stage manager and everything else. And you did your right. production manager duties on your day off in your hotel room. That's when that's you right. Did your advance and you went through the yep. writer and. And it was awful because you'd spend your day making phone calls that, you know, you'd have to leave messages and wait for people to call you back. And it was That's just, right. it was just, you know, awful. Inefficient. I hated it. Yeah. Hated it. Hated yeah. It. Hey, yeah. You know and then what? you had the, you had the inevitable promoter rep that would never return a phone call. And you didn't even know if he was going to be there when you showed up for loading. <laughs> and you, and you didn't even know if the loading was going to happen because who knew if he got the calls, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> you just dealt with it. Hey, so early on, you, you, you also became a site coordinator. You kind of were one of the first guys to become a site coordinator and kind of define that role. Is that true? Would you say that's true? You know, that's, that's a, uh, hard question i i have no idea that it's true and uh to sit to identify somebody before uh, my first psycho gig uh hard to say i mean i don't know if uh, albert lawrence is comes to mind because he's made it a profession his whole career yeah. you know yeah. i don't know if you know Al, albert or not but uh he's been psychoing for everybody for a long long time but you, you know, you uh, did more, uh, you did uh, the Jackson's Victory Tour, right? As a yes. site coordinator. Yeah. Before what? that was uh, Genesis. We can't dance. Right. Uh, Morris Lida was a production manager. Morris, right? Who? Sidebar. Morris and Buford Jones. I don't know if you know Buford. He I used to be name. a show a show co engineer. Very very well known. Pink Floyd way back 
Anyway, uh, Buford and Morris Lida were working for Shilko on the Uriah Heap tour in 1972 and or 73, whichever. Uh, they were driving at the time what they called the Yellow Dog. Uh, they cut a hole in the window of the of the truck and had a little compartment to sleep in in the back. And of course, they drove all night and then set up that PA, the old Shoko PA with the Dixie cups that stacked up on a dolly, and that was the bass <laughs> horns. Did you ever see those? Oh no, that that actually predates me. Yeah. So the Dixie cups were fiberglass horns, and they nested inside of each other, and they'd stack up like. 10 high and then the 15 inch speakers were in boxes like two feet by three feet or whatever and then they uh session latched the horns onto those boxes well, i remember made session big, locking boxes yeah. together absolutely so morris lida is, is the guy that called me to see if i'd go out and site co for uh genesis on we Cat dance and uh which was their first kind of stadium this tour right right i think so that was like early 90s no early 80s yeah early when 80s. was that it had yeah. to be early 80s because the victory tour was 1984 right which was which was basically michael jackson's thriller tour in a lot of ways because that was 100 percent. yeah that's where he moonwalked and wore the single glove and, you know. Yet another and, example of a whole bunch of people feeding off him. Right. So that was that was actually a massive tour. Didn't ML Procise mix that? Was he front yes. engineer in that? I do remember Yes, that. he was. And Jim Trapman was the LD. Wow. So I, I, what, what, any memories of that tour? Because I know, I know that was kind of... Michael didn't need to do the tour, but the brothers needed the money. So they did the Jacksons and hence, they, hence they the, uh, many, many people feeding off of it. Um, it was uh, a lot of firsts on that tour. Um, the first time that I know of that a huge video screen was used, which was an Ida four projection from front of house. And the screen was 40 feet wide and 30 feet high above the roof. We had 90 foot scaff towers on each side of the, of the roof. And that's what 90 up the, feet of scaffolding. I have some pictures Holy in my shit. office of the feed line in Denver that I took from up in the stands. And it, as you know, a feed line is guys standing on each other's shoulders. It appears to be all the way from the ground, 90 feet and they're plugging standards. And then they had to put a head block up there, which was, you didn't do that without having all the diags, and I can tell you that because it was. <laughs> and they're all and they're all sharing hammers too, because not everybody. Oh, has a hammer. nothing! No helmets, no safety harnesses. You had your leg wrapped around a standard. Uh, yeah, none of that shit, and and of course the big video screen, when we could use it, because there were many times you couldn't use it because the wind would kick up, but when yeah. we could use it, this is when I saw the effect of a close-up of somebody looking in the camera and zooming in on them, and every girl in the place falls down on the ground, which was an effect that we polished with Bon Jovi much later. <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. So Don, Don King was the promoter on that tour, wasn't he? Uh, Chuck Sullivan, actually. 
although Don King would take credit along with Al Sharpton and Jesse Jackson and, you know, a, a various host of other personalities. Oh, Sullivan. Isn't that the yeah. guy? They own the New England Patriots. Yeah. It used time. to be called Sullivan stadium before That's it right. was that. And, and didn't that tour kind of wreck him? Didn't he have to sell the totally. team because he lost so much money on that? He owned the New England Patriots, owned the Foxborough stadium and the Jackson totally. victory tour ruined him and he had to sell everything. Totally. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. There was uh uh, you know, I'm sure there were many, many uh, instances of blowing huge amounts of money. Uh, I know of one, which I thought was criminal, but it happened. Uh, we had a uh, John McGraw built a stage. <coughs> Excuse me. Uh, John, you know, John McGraw, yeah, of course. Uh, he built a stage for this show. Um, it was decided because of all the inner workings of the stage that it needed to roll into place because the lighting rig was pretty massive. Conventional lights, of course, yeah, of course ACLs yeah. and power cans and all that. So we built a what was called the front porch on the stage. And it was bigger than the, the performing stage, of course. Excuse me a second. <laughs> <laughs> Um, the stage would be built out on that front porch and there were railroad tracks going upstage. And once the lighting rig went up, we rolled the whole stage in. Wow. And then they, then they took the front porch down and put it under the stage for the loadout. Now, a couple of things come to mind. Our schedule wasn't such that we needed to do that. We were playing one city a week. And there wasn't any travel time that was more than, I, I wouldn't think more than four or 500 miles. And then they had to wait for the steel. We had two sets of steel, I believe. And <laughs> that took a week to put all that scaffold up, I would imagine. Oh, God, it was crazy. Um, but doing that front port gag, Got a lot of the road guys out back to the hotel a lot faster, like two or three hours maybe. But it cost fifty grand a show to do it. Mm. Was that Benny Collins? Benny Collins do that tour? No, it was um, uh, Peyton. Peyton Wilson. Peyton Wilson, gotcha. Yeah, yeah, he's the one that hired me for it. So I was the advance guy and the site co. So what I would do is go on Mondays. We were doing two and three shows a weekend in one city. And on Mondays, I would fly off and look at two or three stadiums and figure out how we were going to get in and out or if we were going to get in, in and out because they weren't putting shows on sale until two weeks before. Really? Yeah. And it turned into, I mean, there was a lot of... Uh, potential graft you know they're you're not they're not worried about putting it on sale a month ahead of time because they're working on deals all over the right. place uh yeah. that was during that job was my first um encounter with mr azov actually okay uh we were having a, a meeting there they were realizing in the beginning at, at rehearsals when i flew out to meet with peyton and i got hired uh there was a meeting on logistics and 
uh, Irving Azov was sitting in this meeting. And as you know, in all these kinds of production meetings pre-tour, there's a lot of people that are generally production managers that are pointing out problems that are going to arise because your job is to anticipate, right? So you get this whole list of things that are uh, a, a, a rock in the road. It's a bump that you're going to have to go over and you're a wet blanket for doing that. And of course, everybody else is counting the money. They're just going, Jesus, we're making millions here. Don't, don't rain on my parade. Well, in this meeting, finally, uh, it came down to, well, we haven't even looked at that stadium. We haven't looked at that stadium. And Peyton says, well, Bugsy's going to go out and uh, advance these shows for us. He says, what are you doing here? And I said, well, I'm the site coordinator for this. We're just going to load out after, you know, or I'm going to be loading in the stage. And uh, he goes, charter a jet and go around and look at all these stadiums in one trip. And I said, can I use yours? <laughs> that was my first interaction with him. He had this great big guy and I can't remember his name. He was like six foot seven that went around with him. And he took a step towards me when I said that, because he <laughs> thought I was being a smart ass. Right. But the funny thing is I was being serious because I've been, I'd never been on a charter jet. What the hell? I just said, okay, can I use where, where do you Where do you get it? You know? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so that was that first thing. Um, they, you know, the, the ticket thing was, Nobody knew. It was just pigs at a trough because it was a foregone conclusion that there was going to be all this money, you know. And what I, uh, my fondest memories of that whole thing was being able to go around and modify stadiums for the show. The first one was in Kansas City. And I went in there with the tape measure. And Peyton and I had agreed that we had to be able to drive the trucks to the stage. That was our criteria. We didn't want to push gear, you know, 500 yards through a parking lot. So Kansas City, they dug out the tunnel five inches so we could drive in there. Nice. Totally ripped it out. Uh, the west end of Giant Stadium, if you ever looked in there before they tore it down on the west end, there's these big saw marks that go up. The outside of there, there was four forklifts and a cement saw. And they cut this chunk of concrete out in one piece and lowered it down. They took out eight inches of concrete so we could drive trucks down that end of the stadium. So nice. thanks to us, everybody that followed was able to come in the other end. Nice. How <laughs> oh, funny. Yeah. Knoxville, the same thing. We cut out some I-beams. It was a, it was one of those, they'll do anything to get the show deals. You right. know? Well, you, yeah. you also, you, you site coordinating became a thing for you. I mean, you, didn't you do pop art as well? Did you, you teach did you pop art? And, and Yep. I was the, actually the night guy on pop Mart, which was uh, Steve Iredale, who I'd known met on some uh, Bon Jovi stadium dates that we'd done. Um, he was a site coordinator for us actually. Um, he called and said, we need somebody to be in charge after production leaves on the, on the tour. So basically, uh, the daytime site goes would leave at 
uh, right after the show, but I would show up at seven o'clock and the deal was they were supposed to come in at eight in the morning. So I would go have a, like a 13 hour, 14 hour shift. And so once we, once the show was down in production, I would just be yelling at Steve and all the stage managers to get your shit out of our way, you know, <laughs> get your stereo off my coffee table. I want to take it apart. Right. Uh, the way, well, the, the, it wasn't stereo. That's famous for that big center cluster spray painted orange. Oh, that? it sucked. Willie really, really screwed him on that one, boy. Oh. I mean, the best place to see that show and hear or to hear that show was out behind front of house where the four delay towers were. <laughs> And what about yeah, the Joe weather? Hurley? Joe Hurley got shafted bad on that one. Oh, yeah. I mean, he really got the got it shoved up his ass. And, on and that then, one. Did, you know, didn't they come out of a lemon or something like that? The big did, did, the whole some... yeah, it was a lemon with a swizzle stick or something. Yeah. Didn't yeah. They have trouble opening? Didn't they get stuck in it? No, the trouble they had was with this new LED thing. Uh, that was the biggest problem because it was right out of the box and there was no weather protection. You know uh no nobody heard of ip or anything you know so <laughs> it was uh it was prone to failure right. i don't know how many truckloads of of silicone cough they used to try and solve the problem but i mean <laughs> in its own way it was like a video for you know devo or something you know <laughs> right. low-res video hey well what would people when people hear your name, I mean, obviously the first thing that people comes to mind or comes to mind is Bon Jovi. I mean, Bon Jovi, you were Bon Jovi's production manager for twenty-five decades. years, decades. Yeah, yeah. Yep. So I mean, that's that's kind of synonymous with you is, is Bon Jovi. So you took them from being a huge arena band selling out mm -hmm. the world to stadiums. You made that transition yep. with them, you know, and, yep. and your experience as a psycho probably came in handy with that, huh? Uh, well, you realize that some of the uh, problems, anticipating the problems that you're going to have is with them, it was mostly scheduling. Uh, they had to, you know, you have to steer in a situation like that. I mean, luckily for me, uh, Doc McGee brought me on board from uh, when they quit opening. Uh, they stopped opening for 38 Special. And they start, went out on their first headline tour. Um, I had worked for Doc on Pat Travers when he took over that. And then on Motley Crue when he uh, took that. Oh, you did and Motley Crue? Doc was managing Motley Crue, yeah. Okay, um, but you, you weren't out there. Okay. Uh, no, I worked for Motley Crue. You did? What, what tour was that? What did you do? Uh, like, like girls, girls, managers. girls, girls, yeah, girls, girls that kind of thing? Yeah. Um, they were uh well there the dirt is probably pretty revealing so i don't have to go into any any of their <laughs> some of their colorful background stuff uh but at alpine valley i was working for motley crew and doc came in with these these two guys uh and introduced them to me so this is john and this is richie and i looked them up and down and i said um i forget the exact wording but it was something I made a, some crack about a costume party or something. Right. And they, <laughs> they looked at, uh, at doc, like who the fuck is this guy? Right. And doc was, he actually got a little red in the face, but he, he goes, you're going to be working for these guys next year. 
And I said, sorry, <laughs> they had, they had just come from their photo shoot for the cover of Rolling Stone and they were in their full regalia. And, and it ends up John's being, John's on the cover of Rolling Stone and he's got the full rock star look oh, going. Big hair, feathery rings. Yeah. Everything, right? And I had no idea who they were, right? And uh, they were just finishing up their 38 special opening slot and selling like $30 a head in merch when they were opening act. It was unbelievable. So, of course, that, that turned into their first headline tour, Seven Trucks. Thank you very much. <laughs> <laughs> hey, were you were you on the uh, on the on that Moscow trip with yes. Bon Jovi and Motley and, and <clears throat> yep. all those were didn't Motley fire Doc McGee on the plane on the way out of there? Well, the because, backstory because, I, because Bon Jovi used pyro and Motley couldn't or the, something stupid. The like back that. the backstory was um, we had I what the hell's the name of the company? We had a pyrotech named Kurt Anthony who knew the band's music. Like, I mean, they had all of these pyro cues that were right, really timed. And it was like, he was a member of the band. It wasn't none of this automated programming shit. It was all right, triggering, right. you know? And Kurt was, they were really enamored with the whole idea of having accents, you know, air bursts and concussions and all that shit. And um, John said, I really, really want to use pyro here and i said well we all agreed that nobody's using pyro because it's you know that was part of the agreement it would just be too much for everybody to use pyro so kurt and i, and I said and kurt was there with all of his stuff because it had been unresolved and kurt goes what do you want me to do and i said i want you to make up your own mind <laughs> <laughs> and i said just go for it it's the last show of the night i mean it's it's not for the band. It's for the crowd. You know, I was trying to come justify it with anything I could think of. It's the end of the show. It's like a fireworks display. Well, they used pyro. It was the best thing for the crowd. They loved it. And then Tommy, uh, Tommy Lee just belted Doc right in the nose with a fist. Right at backstage, he came up to you, son of a bitch, pow. He smacks him. Oh, funny. And Doc a little while later, Doc looks at me and he goes, you really fucked me on this one, didn't you? <laughs> <laughs> oh, so Doc didn't know you were going to use pyro for Bon Jovi? No. Oh, no, wow. So you're the reason why Motley Crue fired Doc McKee. <laughs> well, I, I don't know if I'd go that far, but I was a contributing factor, I would say. Right. You, you also worked for uh, Doc on Kiss, too. Didn't you do that Psycho Circus thing? Yep. Was at the end the, of it. Go that ahead. Was the, that was the tour where they... They tried doing a 3D screen and the audience wore glasses or some shit like that. Is that true? It is very true. Uh, this is another docism. He wanted to be the first ones to really go for it with 3D. Uh, we Did it work? They found a well, they found a company in LA that came close to doing it, right? And it was uh we went out there and we did like, I don't know. The KISS tour was the hardest thing I've ever done, I will say. And at the end of it, I told Doc to lose my number. <laughs> True story. Uh, basically, um, the company that was providing it sent a couple guys out there who were not road crew guys. 
And after the first two weeks, they walked off the job. They couldn't take it. There was no sleep. Right. It was, you know, you got on the bus at three or four in the morning and you got off the bus at eight or seven or whatever. Oh, you know? The video guys were pariahs. That's where the word video came from back. In oh, the day. absolutely. It so, was a long integration for video to be the norm. It took a long time. Oh, yeah. Well, Bon Jovi plowed a lot of that field, I can tell you, as did Genesis. Um, so those guys left and Doc was like furious and he's like, we, you guys got to figure this out. So we were in uh, Columbus. I remember it very well at the new arena. And Dave Nugabar, the nocturne engineer at the time, you must know him. He's been around forever. I don't remember. Not, possibly. Okay. Yeah. Uh, Dave Nugabar and I went around the arena, which was still cleaning up. We were the first show in there, I think. And they were still cleaning up. And there was all kinds of conduit and metal and all kinds of bullshit laying everywhere. And we picked up an armload of stuff and threw it in a shopping cart. And Dave Nugabauer invented on the spot a way to mount two cameras side by side. And one of them we found through experimentation put four degrees off to the other one. And you could get a reasonable facsimile of 3D with glasses and that's what we used we had a camera mounted on a on a jib or two cameras mounted on a jib with this aluminum channel iron rat's nest of shit to hold the cameras and uh and this is on a show whole, day right this is <laughs> literally and we used that thing for the rest of the tour it's a fucking rebar wire strapped together duct tape all that shit <laughs> It was hilarious. Oh, how funny. Dave Nugabauer, man, he, he pulled it right out of his ass on that one. Right. Well, Bon Jovi, you guys have had so many huge shows over the years. I remember the, mm -hmm. the one said it was like a city skyline. And, yeah. And, and you had so many huge shows. There was, was Spike did all that stuff with you, didn't he? Yes, he did. Spike was, uh, I think, I'm, I'm pretty sure it was on the first stadium tour. Um, and I really can't remember where we started, where we knew each other from. It was, he was a lighting guy on a tour and he was starting his design company. Anyway, I called him up saying, we need to look at some ideas. And uh, he, there was, uh, there were a few people that were names that I can't remember now uh, that submitted and uh, I, his came up as the look that they wanted and lo and behold long relationship still there well he, is. he was uh when i finished with them a year and a half ago uh spike was the guy we were working on the set design and the uh, uh video tracking and all that stuff so right so tell me about your relationship with Harry Sandler and, and, and Jesse Sandler and, and how you kind of mentored him and, and all that. I'm interested well, in Harry, that story. Harry and I never worked together. Um, he called me and asked me to come and do the Eagles. Um, I don't remember what year it was, but uh, we <laughs> both flew out to uh, Los Angeles uh, I saw him for five minutes in the lobby. The next morning we were going to go to meetings 
And both of us came down with the flu really bad. We didn't see each other. They blew off all the meetings and we flew home. I was sick as a dog and I flew home. I was in the hotel for, I think, two or three days. And so was he. So that was the end of our <laughs> almost relationship. I did. Uh, he was kind of involved a bit, I believe, on the uh, Don Henley, Stevie Nicks tour I did. But only for a short time. I think he right. came out to, to warn me what a handful Don is. <laughs> <laughs> well, but, you know, his, his son, Jesse, it's well known that he's now the production manager for Bon Jovi. And, and, and you kind of. You well, he's of, actually he's actually moved on. Um, has he? Yeah, he's been working for Fish for the last couple of years. Gotcha. And now he and now he's full time with them. Right. And. uh they are, I don't know if this will make the cut, but um, the, the last show, they did like a corporate gig or something here about a month ago and, and all that. And, and uh, Napalm, Chris Adamson, was covering that. Oh, wow. So, I've never yeah. heard anybody call Chris Adamson Napalm. You're kidding. How funny is that? Oh, my God. He was a promoter rep in England for years. He did a a lot of shows with us. Uh, I mean, like every after show. Pink Floyd? After Pink Floyd? Oh, days, God, or? yes. This was... Um, my God, Jesus. I can't what even remember. What a personality. Well, anyway, well, he I guess, was, that, I guess we, called that... him, we called him Napalm because he blew up all the time. He would just start firing up. Well, anyway, I, so he's taken over for Jesse, I believe. Well, I guess the question I was trying to ask you is just the whole... You... you kind of put Jesse, Jesse in there. Yeah. You, you kind of, he was him for uh, your replacement, right? I can, I can remember uh, the day that he got moved. He was working for Claire brothers on a stadium tour and he was the third man on the PA or third man on the PA crew or fourth man on the PA crew for Claire brothers. Uh, they hired him as, because I believe Harry wanted him to get some of that experience. And he was there uh, working with Bob Weibel and oh, yeah. a, couple, a couple of the other old guys uh, about halfway through that stadium tour. I walked up on stage over, he was flying to PA. He's, he had stage left. Uh, I had been watching him for the whole first half of the tour. And I went up and said, Hey, how long do you think you're going to be a, a sound rat? And he goes, uh, short as possible <laughs> like that. And I said, why don't you come and work for me in the office? And he goes, doing what? And I said, everything I don't do, you know, hotels, flights, uh, mom, all that shit. I need, I need an office manager. And, uh, you know, at that time it was production assistant. Now it's a coordinator job. Yeah. But, uh, but uh, so he was there with me for, I think seven or eight years and more and more, you know, you got involved with uh, responsibility and I became more of the guy that handled the political shit and saying no when it had to be said and, you know, anticipating any, uh, you know, routing and doing all kinds of shit like that with the agents. And, and uh, I think that's where you, when you have somebody that handles that stuff, then you're really more in the production manager mode at that point, you know, right. and as we all know, in our, our group of colleagues, it's uh, 
it's kind of the way the, the job has formed itself over the mm-hmm. last 20 years. Well, well, you saw your retirement coming and you're like, you know, I'm going to, I'm going to sort this out before I leave. You know, <laughs> I, I, I totally get it. I totally get it. Yeah. Bon, bon Jovi, man. I mean, gosh, how many shows would you say you've done with him? Oh, Jesus. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Easily. I, easily. I mean, in one tour we did, uh, I think the New Jersey tour, which was their second one with Doc, uh, it almost broke up the band. I think it was 230 shows. Wow. With Basically with no breaks. I think we got Christmas off. Probably I know I spent you did on that, that tour. A little over a year, huh? Yeah, I, I had two birthdays. One was on that tour. One was in Tokyo and one was in uh, Glasgow. <laughs> and, <laughs> you know, at the end of it, nobody's hardly speaking to each other. You know, I can imagine. I yeah. can imagine. And I think Doc, I think that was the end of Doc's run with them, if I'm not mistaken. Is that when Paul Cornelius took over? Was that at that time? Corzilius. Corzilius. Yeah. Corzilius. Well, no, he didn't. He didn't take over then. He was actually working at the beginning for me <laughs> um, at the very beginning on Slippery When Wet. And then Paul became the tour manager for many years. Right. And he, he assumed a lot of managerial roles. Um, they went through a couple business managers. Uh, and Paul uh, was very uh, fiscally oriented the bane of any production manager. Oh, wow. <laughs> However, it, like over your shoulder, looking at everything and look out, look um, receipts. And- ab- absolutely. Absolutely. And that was his job. He was really good at it. Uh, sometimes it was like a bull in a China shop, you know, uh, dealing with, with people, but uh, you know, he got his point across in, in a short order and uh, yeah. there wasn't yeah, any but- doubt. But they have it. to trust, you know, they need to trust us. Yep. You know, I, 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 I'd like to think that I'm not out there to spend the band's money, but you know, we're there to do a job and we're to be trusted. And if I want to buy right. a fucking sheet of plywood, let me buy a sheet of plywood. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you know, we we're spending some big money, but it was all for the sake of the next show. You know, uh, I didn't like, chartering an Antonov and putting six sea containers on it and then go, doing an overnighter, you know, with a Russian crew. I mean, that wasn't any fun. It wasn't yeah. glamorous. It was, it almost killed us. I mean, every time that plane took off, they'd come out with a street sweeper and shovel all the bolts and nuts off the runway. So the next plane could go, <laughs> I mean, what a piece of shit. <laughs> Uh, I'd only loaded a couple of those in my career, but yeah, the smell, no, of, fl- the smell of boiling fl- potatoes and cabbage. Yeah, we flew on them, right, to handle oh, the load. Wow. You yeah. actually flew on it as well. Oh, yeah. crazy. Uh, the first time we made the mistake of going into the crew quarters and laying down on the cots, and they just was like, they just went after us big time. I mean, it was almost a fight until we realized it was their cots. And uh, we ended up, all of us, sleeping on packing blankets on on gear, you know, and web seats and shit. Oh, horrible. Freezing. Freezing. Two or two or three days of that. And you know, your hotel, I didn't care what the hotel was in a sheep pen at that point. You know? <laughs> <laughs> hey, another point of interest that I, that I'd like to hear about is uh, in your career was uh, with Prince. 
Right. And you did you do the you did the twenty one nights in London, right? Um, I loaded it in and stayed for two days and handed it off to Chris Reynolds. Ah, Chris Reynolds. That's how. Somebody. That's where Chris got involved with Prince. Right. Um, Were you doing Prince before that? Did you hand it to him? Yeah, I did his musicology tour, which was the last North American tour that he did. Okay. And uh, for AEG. Um, yeah, it was, it was the best, uh, in one respect, um, Tim Woolley, is that a name you're, you he's know, a, to work as an accountant, right? Uh, he had asked me to get involved on the Jackson previous Jackson tour. And I had said no, because the tour owed all the vendors I work with money. And if you think I'm going to go on board under those conditions, no, you got to pay everybody what's owed before I even consider it. Right. Well, they did pay everybody, but in the meantime, um, Prince was going out. Um, and Tim called me cause he was the accountant for AEG and I'd never, I'd never worked with AEG before. Uh, Paul Gongaware was the CEO there and, uh, John, John Meglin. Yep. Meglin and Gongaware. Uh, they basically, uh, brought me in to be the production manager and luckily for me, I was working for them and not for Prince. Uh, So, so that made a lot of difference in how my relationship with him went. Um, I actually told him at one time, you can't fire me because I don't work for you. <laughs> he hated that, I'm sure. There, there was some joy in Mudville, I can tell you. That was me. <laughs> you know, I've spoken to Malcolm Weldon and I've spoken to Obi about Prince. And, you know, this is just, you know. You know what? There's both, just of, a, both of them called me to ask me, how the hell did you deal with this guy? <laughs> So, I, you know, I spoke to Malcolm and I spoke to Opie both when they were, and they luckily for them, they were only doing, you know, a short runs, you know, I think they were only doing like eight or 10 shows kind of thing. You know? Right. Uh, right. You know, his, uh, I had a lot of interesting interactions with him. Um, he, he was not, he was the hardest guy ever to work for in a lot of respects. Uh he would make up his mind on something and it was forget it. There's no right or wrong. There's no talking about it. You know, uh, one notable thing came to mind is we started out the tour, uh, out in Reno and, uh, I was going around on stage with him the first day and he didn't, he thought I was a carpenter and I was talking about doing different things. Right. And then Congoer told him I was a production manager. And then he, then he started talking to me about, uh, audio and stuff. And, we, we had a monitor mixer and everybody was on ears and he absolutely would not let that happen. He said, I want the PA to be heard the same everywhere. I said, it's not possible. And he says, you're one of those guys, huh? And I said, no, I want to tell you that the band, if they don't hear what they need to hear to play better for you, is that what you want? If they can play better for you because they can hear what they need to hear. And he was like, uh, there was nobody around. And that's the thing I learned about him. You don't have discussions about anything in a group of people. 
that was his trick because then you couldn't talk back. You couldn't fight. You couldn't do anything because he's on a stump. He was performing all the time. You know, the man in charge It's hard to get off the stump when you've made your speech, you know? And, uh, I discovered right away. It's better to, can we talk over here? And, uh, made a lot more headway with him that way than, you know, head him off at the pass before you, you know, you could see him. <laughs> he used to, he used to stay after shows. And I remember Abby, the wardrobe girl, Abby Franklin, she came to on the bus. Uh, we were all like down and dirty, dead. She comes and she goes, Bugsy, he's still in the dressing room. And I said, so what? Leave him there. She goes, he's, it's all set up. I said, well, what's he doing? And she said, he's on the internet. And I said, he hates the internet. What are you talking about? You know, he's on the computer. I said, great. And I went in there and I followed the cable uh, out of his dressing room because he was, uh, it, it was hardwired and I unplugged it. And his head pops out of the dressing room and he says to his bodyguard, hey, I lost my connection. And I was holding it up and I said, time to go. And he goes, <laughs> what do you mean? I'm on the internet. And I said, no, you're not. We're going. We need that equipment and we're going to, we have a show tomorrow. And he goes, okay, see you tomorrow. Just like that. Oh, funny. I mean, as I thought I was going to get fired, but I said, no, I've had enough of this. Unplugged him right from the wall. Well, you know, I think so, those guys respect that, you know, you know, you know, yeah, if you don't pull any punches, but you do it in a way that is not offensive, you know, in front of a group, I think that means show it shows some respect for them. You know, right. you don't have to you don't have to be demeaning or put them down. It goes with anybody, and, you know, from the 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 lowest stage hand to the drum tech to the you know stage manager, lighting designer, anybody. You know, to Prince. <laughs> He was a character. I mean, no doubt. He was. How about yeah. uh, how about Shania Twain? I know, I know that the, the lovely, lovely Shania Twain. I know you've worked for her in the past. Yeah, she. Uh, that was another AEG thing. Um, they called me to come to a meeting in Vegas. She was going to do a residency at Caesars, and I went strictly as to consult. Uh, on the budget and because it's a residency you know you don't need a touring production manager to go in there for that right anyway so I went to a meeting at Caesars uh, with her and Chris Littleton who is the tour manager and there was a provisional bu budget that was in place and we sat there and I was looking at the budget and what they were doing and uh, it was about $2 million over what I thought it should be pre-production. They had three different rehearsals. They had uh, production rehearsals in two different places, all this kind of thing. And I just, uh, you know, I said to uh, Gongawar and Meglin, I said, listen, and I told her this too separately, any band that you hire can learn the music if they have the stems they learn everything ahead of time because the set list never varied. It was the same every night. There was no free ball and none of that. Give them the show. Give them their parts. If they can't learn them, then get somebody else. You don't need to go to the Bahamas for six weeks to have rehearsals. That was, at, you know, three quarters of a million dollars, right? You don't need to have a production rehearsals in a, in a uh, 
showroom in, in LA for three weeks with full lighting and everything else. We've got five days of pre-production at the Coliseum at Caesars. We'll schedule it so lighting has dedicated time overnight to program. Well, they won't like that. Well, I'm not here to make them like it. I'm here to tell them what the schedule is. Lighting works overnight. You know, crew works during the day. Talent comes in for the second shift and they get seven or eight hours. No screwing around. And that's what we did. It went right off and we did the friends and family show that on the fifth night and it was fine from the beginning. So that was a, a couple million dollars that they were prepared to spend because nobody like one of us, any one of us would have went in there and said the same thing. You know, if you're going to hire a band, they got to learn this shit at home. <laughs> you, yeah, don't, yeah. you don't have them come and figure out the parts in front of everybody, especially her, because that doesn't instill confidence in your, you know, in your singer. If they watch you learn stuff, if you know it already, they love it. They don't right. have to work that hard, yeah. you know? See, if there's any band managers listening, we not only do we spend money, but <laughs> we know how to save money. Absolutely. It's true. It's true. It's true. It's, uh, you have to be able to manage their expectations. And that's the biggest thing, I think. You know, anticipate, anticipate the problems and manage expectations ahead of time. Yeah. So uh, That's why I really appreciate working for artists and managers that just put their trust in you. Right. You know, I mean, I... I want to do my job well. I'm not out there to spend their money. I'm out there to right. produce the show for them. You know, Doc just, McGee was great for that. He he was like, just give me the headlines, you know? Right. I like to walk in and see everything's the way it's supposed to be and not somebody hand me an invoice that is $200,000 to do it, you know? Right. <laughs> I want them to pay me to do it. <laughs> <laughs> hey, so how much can you talk about uh, Michael Jackson, This Is It? Well, I mean, I don't know. I mean, you know, I, know that, I know that, you know, I know it was, it was a tough time. I know there's, there's a lot of litigation and I know there was a lot of shit that went down. I don't know what you can say or what you can't say, but is it, you know, this is it. Michael Jackson's comeback tour, 2009. Mm -hmm. You guys were in pre-production at the O2 in London, getting ready to launch, right? And you were, you were the production manager on that? Mm-hmm. Yep. Okay. Yep. I mean, how much can you talk about that? Uh, the start of it, can't, you know, obviously there was a, a pretty good NDA that goes along with that one. Right. And as with a lot of other ones that, you know, um, yeah. but uh, Paul Gongaware was in town in Minneapolis at the Target Center with uh, Tina Turner and Jake and Malcolm were both there, I believe. And he said, let's go and have dinner. And we went across the street to the Capitol Grill. And we were sitting there eating dinner. He says, hey, I got a job you might be interested in. And I said, whatever you want, because I think the world of them, right? Uh, anything for Gongawar. And he said, well, I want you to fly to L.A. We're done with this. And I, and I need you to go to a meeting next week. And I said, fine, no problem. I'm between jobs. And uh uh, so then he said, well, it's with Michael Jackson. Um, the first chapters can be really short. I flew, uh, I was actually on my way to the airport and he called and said, meetings canceled. Okay. Back home. Did it again. Got to the airport and was sitting, waiting for the plane calls, meetings canceled. The next time 
I flew to LA, got in the Hotel Marriott by the airport, stayed there two days, meetings canceled. And I'm going, wow. I said, Paul, can you get a grip on this? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I like racking up some frequent flyer miles, but this is getting a little silly, you know. So I flew back the next time and I uh, went to the Beverly Hills Hotel to meet with him and this man called Dr. Tomei, who was Michael's, he wasn't his manager. He was more of a consigliere, you know. Uh, it was part of their vetting process. And we sat there in the bar at the Beverly Hills Hotel for about an hour or two. And uh, I think he just wanted to make sure he didn't know anything about production at all. And he just wanted to make sure that I wasn't going to be a dick because then he goes, he says, okay, let's go over to the house. I was like, what? He said, we're going to go over to Michael's house and meet with him. I was like, well, that was a bit of a surprise, but okay, no problem. Uh, we had, when you say the house, does that mean the, the ranch, the, no, no, his house in Woodland Hills, okay, where he, where he passed actually. Gotcha. So we had, I think we had four meetings together, uh, three or four. And at his house, uh, with Paul and John, Paul Gongaware. I think John Meglin came to one or two, uh, Randy Phillips. And uh, then it, uh, you know, we were, I thought we were making some great headway there. And then, uh, you know, I, I remember saying to Paul at one point, I said, when do the floodgates open? And he's like, what do you mean? And I said, well, I know from what I can see that Michael needs a lot of encouragement and there are going to be so many people that are brought in here for that very reason, only under the auspices of a different uh, job title, you know, yeah. whatever you want to call it. Uh, it did happen that way. I was very, I had a lot of foresight, <laughs> but we went to uh, center staging uh, and it was the choreographer at the time. So and Kenny Michael Ortega was it? Uh, Kenny was the director. Oh, director. Okay. Yeah. Uh, what was the choreographer's name? He didn't last very long. He had a drinking problem, but we were at center staging in Burbank for a couple of weeks. But the first, first few days, it was just, uh, Michael, the choreographer and myself and about four bodyguards. And of course, word got out right away. I ended up having to hire event staff to come in and what close does, the game. What does Michael do by himself in a center staging studio? I mean, I, I don't, was there dancers there? Or no, it- just him. He was he was doing his homework at the time. He was listening to the music, working out his dance routines. We put down a parquet floor. Uh, I brought in a PA. He wanted. To, he, he said, "I need it to be loud enough so I get the energy from the sound." And I said, "That's right. easy. I'll just keep adding speakers until you're happy or your ears are bleeding." <laughs> he thought that was. Pretty funny. Uh, so, so you got to you got to stand in a room and watch Michael Jackson dance by himself. You know what? It's just like any other performer we work for. They I, get I know, used but to still, see. But still, he, he, yeah, you know, he, you're he's, sitting he's there. A, he's a freaking magician when it comes to dancing, though. It's right. crazy. So I was in the production office right next to the dance studio. So he, it was in and out. And at that point in time, and I knew I had a very short window with him. Because pretty soon, you know, we're auditioning all the band 
We're auditioning dancers. And he's going to be disappearing, going off everywhere. Kenny Ortega came on the scene right around then. And then it became a whole design world blow up. I mean, every song was looked at. And it turned into Ben-Hur, of course. So, so you know, that, my time was very short, one-on-one with him. Uh, notable influences were, you know, the choreographer came in there. He said, you got to talk to Michael. He's, he's losing it, right? I said, why is that? He said, well, he's, he doesn't want any phones in the O2 when he's there. And I said, well, that's going to be a problem, you know. And... <clears throat> So I went to talk to him and I said, what is the problem here? And he says, we can't have anybody recording anything in the O2. I've heard that can be done and I don't want anybody to bring their phone in there. I said, well, let me tell you something here. If you don't mind, let's look at something. So I pulled up a YouTube videos of his sister doing shows that were recorded on phones. And he said, and he, we watched about, I don't know, seven or eight of these videos and they're from all over these arenas. Right. And you know how horrible they are. And I, and I looked at him, I said, is this frightening to you to see this? And he goes, no, it's terrible. You know, the quality is awful. I said, no, but you know what it is. It's the greatest marketing tool for this show in the world. Right. This is, this is free advertising. It just makes people want to go. I mean, they will want to come from everywhere in the world because it's the only city we're going to be in. And they will come from everywhere to see this. And all we have to do is do the first show and, and it's done. Millions right. of dollars worth of advertising. And he said, well, when you put it that way, it's not so bad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was working for Janet at that time, right before that. Where are you actually. at? Yeah. Oh. 2008. Yep. So, so he, was, he, he responded positively to that one. Okay. So you went and, to London, you went to the O2, you loaded the show in. Oh, we didn't building. actually. No, where, we where, didn't. Where, where was production rehearsals? We went to the forum first. Oh, okay. So all that footage that this is at movie was at the forum and not. At well, the it was actually a documentary crew that was with us from the beginning that okay. Paul, Paul had hired with the agreement from Michael, of course, uh, they wanted to show the, the formation of the thing. We, they brought the uh, camera guys in right at the beginning, except after choreography. Um, you know, the band rehearsals at center staging. We went to the forum. We started bringing in show elements. <clears throat> and then we moved to Staples. I remember talking to Tim Lywicki at, at Staples going, uh, this is not a venue that normally gets used for production rehearsals, isn't it? And he says, no. this is a first. It'd be a bit expensive <laughs> for that, yeah. Uh, well, it's an AEG building, so I'm sure there was plenty of toing and froing going on. Right. They pulled all, we pulled all the seats out on the sides, so the stage, the stage was 100 feet wide. Uh, you know, a classic, and you're, I know what you're thinking. 100 feet wide, what the hell? Well, it was designed for the O2, right, specifically. And I said to Kenny, mark my words, this show will go on the road, and we cannot have a 100-foot stage. 
you can ask a hundred people that are in this business if that will work. And I guarantee you, you'll get every one the same. I, so, I, with, with Roger, we on the wall, our stage is right. hundred feet wide, but we had a 90 and an 80 foot version as well. Right. Which is what I wanted to do. Yeah. And so I'm in a meeting with the AG guys and Kenny. And I said, we cannot build a stage hundred feet wide. And all the elements that go into it have to have a hundred foot stage. We have to 80 is uh, I'll cave on 80, you know, uh, there, and Kenny says, well, we just won't play places that can't, can't take it. I go, I looked at the AG guys and I said, you agree with that? And they went, nope. <laughs> <laughs> that isn't what we're in the business for. Right. So uh, I took the, uh, my painter's tape and I went out in the parking lot and I marked off uh, the size of the stage. And we took the dancers and Michael out there. And I said, guys, here's what you're looking at. Um, that, this is at center staging. And they're like, oh, man, we're going to be tired by the end of this show. I said, careful what you wish for. <laughs> so, so how, how, how they far did agree did a... to. No, go ahead. They did, they did agree to be able to shave it down. We put the moving elements of the show inside the 80 feet. Right. All of that. So I remember watching the This Is It movie, the, the, you know, the dancers coming up, the toasters. And the, 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 the band was kind of uh, buried off to the side. It was a really interesting yeah. Show. How far into the process yeah. were you guys when it when it shut down? Were you close? Were you close to being a um, show? Being a show? We were scheduled. I I tell you, when we moved into the forum, I got one of those uh, a pedestal that they use for rope barricades, and I took a pedestal and I printed out uh, one through thirty, eight by ten letters, one through thirty. And I put 30 all the way down to one on that pedestal right in front of the stage. And Michael came in and asked, what is that for? And I said, that's how many days we have left before we leave for London. And he would look at me like, oh, my God. Right. So every day they'd come in and there'd be a page gone. And when this saw happened i think we were down to i forget eight or nine on that sign so there were a couple of people that took pictures of it how many days left and all that i mean i was working with i was deep into working with anthony uh at rocket G cargo we, we had two seven yeah we were uh uh no no actually he wasn't anthony sorry well, i he was, was involved wasn't he i had a brain fart there no he's he was working for dave at that time, I believe. Okay. Yeah. Um, God, why am I having this brain fart? Anyway, we did had. You have a a did you have a show though? Were you Were you guys ready? No, no, I didn't think so. Um, you could see it was deer in the headlights. Um, every time they come in, and there was a one day less. You know, I mean, there were, every song was its own production. There's a cast of thousands. You know, we didn't even have people to do some of the parts, you know. Um, this is one of the reasons that uh, Michael uh, got to a point where he said, I can't, I'm not going to be ready when we're supposed to start. And they pulled the first eight shows ah. and pushed them on the end. So they were already readjusting. Yep. And it was... Uh, 
you know, we were deep into it. Uh, they had the whole 3D thing. Uh, we had a 100 foot wide uh, five mil, was it five or eight mil LED screen? Well, um, I would imagine eight mil would have yeah. been, would have been it the highest. It wasn't, any, been. wasn't any five then. The uh, start of the show, uh, which was never really completely rehearsed, was a plane came in and filled up the whole uh, screen landing and it pulls up and it's parked in front of the screen. And the video panels opened up at the door and Michael made his entrance uh, downstairs funny. onto the stage that way. Uh, how and cool. then, then, the, then the stairs went back up and the plane took off. And then you got a close-up of him. Uh, and fun. Yeah, it was cool. Um, we never did um, successfully implement that whole rehearsal schedule. So Every time did you ever do a full show run through from top no, to bottom? No, we would do segments. Uh, every day I would try and make a schedule. Cause I mean, there was a cast of hundreds at that point and make a schedule for all the departments and say, this is, and, and you know, it has to be put down on paper for people. Otherwise they're just not going to get it. You know, they sit around waiting and getting away and all that kind of stuff. They need to know when they're supposed to do something. Well, is try as try can, you uh, end up making a schedule to do a rehearsal and then your guy doesn't show up or, uh, you know. Yeah. Was he not showing up? Was he not there every day? Mike? Towards the end, uh, no. He told me at one point he was having trouble sleeping at night because he was so worried about it, you know. In fact, that's when Jesse, I had Jesse with me and he was uh, going to be the road manager for the band. Uh, and he had come out and met everybody and he just happened to be in the office one day and Michael came in and I introduced him and said, I said, how are you feeling? He says, well, I'm really worried. I'm having trouble sleeping because there's so much to do. Oh, I said, no. well, what you can do is as much as you possibly can, as, as, as opposed to as little as you can possibly do. You know, part of the deal with that is that you start depending on everybody else to do everything, you know, and, mm -hmm. and, you know, he knows or he knew that he was the complete center of attention. Of course. I told him at one point he could go out there with a single spotlight and sit on a stool in the middle of the stage and sell just as many tickets. Yeah. But that I, I owe it to my fans to do mm -hmm. the biggest show possible. What was your, did you have a, an ongoing dialogue with him? Did you talk to him often? Um, up until I would say, staples at the forum there was i'd meet him at the door all the time see if there's anything that needed addressing right at the spot you know the whole routine there and uh then at staples it was there was just too much to do for any superfluous activities at all and and that was one of them because he was surrounded by wardrobe people and hair and makeup and you know everybody oh, wow. i i I put them, you know, the production office at Staples that's on stage right there, mm -hmm. the, the little one there. I was supposed to be on the other side by the dressing rooms. I said, no, I'm going in here. That world over there mm. can have it. So what was the, what was it like the day that he didn't show up? Well, you can say that it was, it was a shock for sure, obviously. Uh, Paul, 
texted me and said, Michael's been taken to the hospital and uh, it doesn't look good, you know? And of course that was on TMZ within five minutes and people just started coming in the office, you know? And I just went into protection mode. Uh, I called up uh, who was there. Oh man. My, my staples contact at the time, I said, uh, we, we need to start right now with locking down the doors. Nobody comes in or out. If they have to leave, they get searched on the way out. Right. Oh. And then I went out and Bill Chappelle was the front of house engineer. Oh, and I said, well, Bill, that's right. Yeah. I said, Bill, I need every copy of every audio, anything that's being used around here. And you need to get them all right now. Uh, dancers are off in rooms rehearsing, you know, band members have stuff and we need to collect all that stuff. Cause it's going to be a big deal. And he did, he came back with a ton of CDs and, you know, brought all stuff to the office. Um, Randy Phillips shows up who is the kind of a de facto manager. He mm -hmm. got brought in to straighten Michael out, so to speak. Um, they came in with a bunch of security guys looming over the desk. I, they said, we need every piece of audio that there is. And I handed them the box. Wow. That was really fortuitous. You know, I mean, you, they're lucky to have you. Well, you I don't know, know that it, in, in hindsight, I, I was in this situation before uh, a little bit uh, with Ozzy Osbourne when uh, the guitar player Randy got killed in the plane crash in the early 80s. Oh, wow, you were there? I was the production manager for Sharon and Ozzy. Um, oh, I didn't know that. It was, that was with Jake yeah. Duncan, huh? Yeah. <laughs> He, he was there for a little while. Yeah. 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 Oh, wow. Yeah. That's a whole story in itself. Were you, yeah, were, you that, were you, were you in Florida when the plane crashed? Were you there? Yeah, we were uh, actually uh, on a crew bus. Uh, we had just pulled into a gig. I, I don't know if it was Tampa or someplace. It was an outdoor, like a County stadium gig we were playing and we were just unloading the trucks. Uh, I remember Jolly, Richie, Steffa, and, Brooksy. I don't know if you know any oh, of those guys. I know Brooksy. I, well, I remember Brooksy and Jolly. Right. Richie Steffa was another one of the same size. There's three guys that you don't want to mess with, right? They were all on the loading dock with me, and we were just starting to bring in uh, bring in the um, gear, and I get somebody comes up on the dock and said, hey, there's a Sharon Osborne on the phone for you, and she, Sharon had called and said, you know, the plane crash had happened and we're not playing tonight and all that stuff. So those guys were, we were all very close with Randy. I was very close with them. He was a good friend, you know, and, cause he was such a sweet guy. I mean, he was just a golden. Um, That's what everybody says. So I told everybody to get off the damn dock, ex except those three guys. And they were like, what, what about your loaders? I said, I don't think we need any loaders. And they were throwing shit in there and, you know, it was like, don't talk to anybody, you know. Uh, I remember that very well, actually, because, you know, it was kind of devastating. The bus driver got killed, as did the uh, uh, Sharon's assistant, you know. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, well, I read Ozzy's book, which he, he, he tells the story about he was sleeping on his bus 
And he right. heard the he heard it. He heard the plane was buzzing. Apparently, the plane had been up with other people in it. They were flying and, and buzzing the top of Ozzy's bus and then fucking around. And then and then Randy, who was apparently afraid of flying, yep. somehow was talked into going up on the second one. And this this was the bus driver who was flying the plane. That's apparently correct. He was, after he, was, he had just after had a he long drove. drive and, and yep, uh, and he stuck the tip of the wing right through the window of the bus. And it cartwheeled right into the ground. Oh, that must have been awful. Yeah. So at that time, we were recording shows on that tour, which is what led me to it. Uh, and I was told, get the uh, all the recordings from front of house. Because Randy was on them, you know. Wow. So that's where that history goes. <laughs> mm. Well, you've had you've had quite the career, my friend. You know, um, have, you, have you have you done everything you've wanted to do? I mean, do you do you do you feel do you feel like you've 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 made your all the way around? Is there any kind of box? You know, to I don't. Is there I, any bucket list left? And in, in, in I business think that field? there. I think that you uh, you only take the stuff that comes your way. Uh, if you have to go look for it, then. I don't know. It, there's something, it's a different mindset, you know? And to me, I'm done. So no is the answer. <laughs> <laughs> is there, sure. is, is there, are you going to get out the door at all? Or would you do one-offs for people? Would you fill in? Would you, would you, I have, would you be happy I, to do anything like that? I, I would, uh, I've done a couple one-offs and I did some site Cohen for lug on uh, Metallica. Uh, I don't want to be away from home on a tour anymore. So right. a one-off, a one-off isn't out of the question. Yeah. I did a, a really uh, kind of a fun gig for Apple a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Out, of, out of, Oh, I supposed to say the fruit company. That's right. There was another NDA and they don't want you to use their name. So you can, <laughs> you guys can erase that. So, Hey, it's okay. I mean, I'm talking to you via the fruit company rig here. So right, me too. You know, me so too. you know, I think that makes up for it. The money, you know, the, the combined six, seven thousand dollars that we spent on these products will right. Well, um, you know, when you're when you're hired because you have some expertise when ha- with handling a production budget, and then you go work on a job where they use the budget for toilet paper. I mean, you're kind of redundant at that point, you know. <laughs> Well, you know, I'm glad to see, you know, you're happy and you're doing shit and you're, you look like you're still full of life. Uh, oh, yeah, absolutely. You know, uh, we've only crossed paths a few times. I know I did some right. stuff supporting Bon Jovi and you treated me like a king, you know. Hey, you know took you... care of us when my family and I came to see Muse and Roger Waters, actually. Nice. Yeah. Always happy to, you know, and I'll be yeah. around next year. I'll be going through your neck of the woods. Well, you know, I'll be do there. give a call if you have time. The new and improved target ass, center. Bring your ass out to the country here and you're more than welcome, obviously. Yeah, well, if you've got deer running around in your property, I mean. Oh, yeah. <laughs> He's just showing us the dead skulls hanging from his wall. Uh, <laughs> yeah. I'm sure that meat was tasty, huh? Oh, yeah. <laughs> I, lo- I love making the sausage and the everything else that goes with it. So, Well, I'm glad you're doing shit. Hey, uh, Matt, you got anything for Bugsy? Uh, no, this is um, 
you know, it's amazing just being the, the fly on the wall with these conversations and being, you know, just, uh, it's awesome. Bugsy, fantastic story. Um, thank you for sharing everything with us. It's just great. I, I feel really good about documenting all this stuff and all the wonderful things that people such as yourself and other people in the industry have done. So awesome. Good. Thank you. It was good, good. stuff. Yeah. All right. Thank you. Oh, you know, when before, before, before we go, you know, just a little shout out to Chris Reynolds. I know he came up a little, a while ago and I know you were very, very close with him. He yep. was an associate and a friend and, you know, what one Chris Reynolds story, I, just, I got one. And maybe if you want to throw one, then, uh, then we'll sign off. But uh, I was working for that band called live. We were right. And uh, we were somewhere and I uh, had a job with nine inch nails that I had to go to. And, uh, I got Chris to come in and finish the tour for me. So, you know, I'm doing all, you know, Chris is preparing. He's flying over from the UK. He was still living in, in, in London or wherever he was. And uh, it's a day off and he was flying in and we were going to overlap on a day or two. <clears throat> and I went out to dinner with a bunch of the crew and we come into the hotel after dinner and Chris was passed out in the lobby of the hotel. <laughs> he had, you know, he liked to drink, you know, he liked to drink and he was passed out in the lobby. So me and the crew guys put him in a luggage cart and brought him to his room. And I'm like, here's your new production manager. Right. <laughs> yep. <laughs> but you know what, though, as hard as he fucking hit it the next morning, it was as if it never happened. He was always on time. And exactly, he, he exactly it. what I was going to say. I mean, <laughs> he we nailed it. He worked for us on Bon Jovi as our stage manager and had the greatest, the first guy I ever saw to use maps for loadout. And he had the greatest uh, penmanship and caricature drawings and he would do the whole ass end of the arena and where all the trucks are going to go. And, and, all, and then he put all the comments in clouds and uh, it was hilarious. I just absolutely adored the guy. Uh, and you're absolutely, we called him rubber man for that very thing that you're talking about in the luggage cart. I mean, we would try and haul him off somewhere and it would just be arms akimbo, you know, and the guy, <laughs> After a night out, coming in at three in the morning, hammered to the gills, would be the first guy on the bus in the morning. Yep. It was unbelievable. I couldn't yeah. even I couldn't even think about being in his condition. And I was a couple times, and I'd be like, "Oh my god, I'm oh, never doing that again." Couldn't do it. Right? Couldn't do it. Yeah. Well, yep. I had swapped emails with him uh, probably about a week before he passed, and I had no yep. idea he was he was that ill and. Yep. And he sent me a really nice email and he called me old bean one last time, you know, yep. and, uh, it was, uh, I missed yeah, it as I'm I sure you do as well. Yeah. I spoke to him uh, a few times there towards the end and, uh, lots of emails, of course, and did that. They had a tribute for him, uh, a video yep. tribute. I and, saw that it was very touching. Yeah, it was good. And yeah, he was, uh, they broke the mold yeah. with him. Yeah. Well, you know, just a testament of how much people loved him. He did that, that, that GoFundMe thing. Mm -hmm. I mean, he had yeah. tens of thousands of dollars went into that thing within the yep. first week. It was, it was yep. really touching, but yeah, everybody, if you don't know who Chris Reynolds is out there, he was a, he was a great guy, great production manager, great stage manager, just all around fucking cool dude, gentleman. And, uh, he's missed. Yep. He, uh, he did say to me, uh, 
at the 21 night Prince 21 nights, he was called me up. Uh, my wife and I went off to Wales for a few days before I picked back up with Bon Jovi, but uh, he called me and he said, you are a son of a bitch. <laughs> uh, that's that's the last time I think I saw him was at Coachella 2008. He was doing Prince. I was loading an overnight after Prince finished, but uh, oh well. Well, anyway, you know, speaking of missing, the industry misses you. Hopefully, ah, you'll still be around. Thank you. Uh, I would look forward to seeing you again. Uh, Absolutely. Pop, popping through Minneapolis. Do, do you see Charlie very much up there? No, uh, I actually seen Charlie more in other places than here. You know, <laughs> I never know when he's around. He's up on some, you know, charitable rescue plan or something with the roadies. So, right, right. Well, I've podcasted with him. It was great, Charlie. If you're listening, Bugsy and I would love to hang out with you. So maybe, we'll yeah, make, you got maybe it. We'll make that work. Great. All right, my brother. Be well. Enjoy the rest of the holidays. And uh, I would look forward to uh, hanging out with you. And thank you so much for doing this, man. Thank sure, you so much. Sure. Absolutely. Yeah. My pleasure. It's good stuff. Thanks again. Okay, Matt. See uh, you. Yeah. See you, Bugsy. Take care, guys. Bye. All right. <laughs>